I heard a college professor once say, and I'm going to take this introduction from him. I heard a professor once say that if you could take a poll of 1,000 Americans on what it takes to be happy, and they gave you completely honest answers, their answers would include at least eight things. First, and the most obvious, is wealth. If a friend wears a big smile on his face, we might say, what, did you just win the lottery? Second, freedom from pain, either in body or soul. Third, getting ahead in whatever race a person might find themselves in. Fourth, self-esteem, feeling good or at least content about oneself. Fifth, justice, securing one's rights. Justice and peace summarize the social ideal for most Americans. Sixth, if we are candid, we'd have to include sex or pleasures unbounded by law or regulations or rules. Seventh, we love to win, right? Our positive self-esteem demands this. Eight, honor, to be honored or understood or accepted. This all seems so obvious and so reasonable as to be beyond argument. Higher ideals than this are arguable. Some of us seek them and some of us do not. But these eight would seem to be so indisputable and obvious and universal that whoever would deny that they form part of happiness would be a fool. Whoever insisted that happiness consisted in their opposites would be insane. Let us now perform a fantastic thought experiment. Let us suppose that there was once a teacher who taught precisely that insanity point by point and quite deliberately. Maybe you can't stretch your imagination quite that far, but I'm going to ask you to stretch it even further. Imagine this man becoming the most beloved, revered, respected teacher in all the world. Imagine that almost everyone, even those that did not say that they were his followers, respecting his wisdom, especially his moral wisdom, especially his wisdom on the Sermon of the Mount, the summary of his moral, moral wisdom, which begins with his 180-degree turn truisms. To our desire to wealth, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. To our desire to to have a painless life. He says, blessed are those who mourn. To our desire to get ahead, he said, blessed are the meek. To our desire for contentment with ourselves, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. To our desire for justice, he said, blessed are the merciful. To our desire for unbounded sex and pleasure, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. To our desire for winning and conquest, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And now, to our desire for acceptance and approval and peace, he says, blessed are the persecuted. Now, which is right in our conception of happiness, our society or Jesus? Which philosophy of happiness do we usually operate from? Well, I think Jesus is right. I agree with Chesterton. It is because we are standing on our heads that Christ's philosophy seems upside down. Or to use the analogy we started the sermon series with, Jesus is saying someone has switched the price tags. What Christ says is valuable and will bring blessing and happiness and fulfillment, the world says is invaluable and worthless and will bring sadness and dullness. So Jesus is telling us the price tags have been changed. Who do we believe? This last beatitude makes this point and sharpens the question more fully than the others. Jesus says that you and I, are blessed 
not if we are accepted and loved and appreciated by everyone, but if we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. How can that be? My goal this morning is not to argue that Jesus is right, necessarily, but to explain. I want to, as best as I am able, explain Jesus' idea of persecution and how it ties in with happiness and let you decide for yourself. I want to hold it up like a beautiful work of art and hope that you see the beauty and value and decide it's worthy of your best response. I want to organize what Jesus and the New Testament teach about persecution for righteousness uh, under a couple points here, and these are in your outline. First, expect it. Expect it. Don't be shocked. Don't wallow in self-pity. It is part of the package if you really are growing in righteousness. Jesus tells us that right in the next verse after the, he says, blessed are you in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Wait, who persecuted the prophets? Foreign kings? Invading armies? No. The very people in power in Israel, the cultural elite. In fact, this goes back all the way to their first family. Cain killed Abel, and the book of Hebrews tells us because Abel was righteous and Cain was not. Jesus warned his followers elsewhere in the book of Matthew that if they persecute me, and they did, right, even to death, they will persecute you if you are my follower, for the servant is not above his master. One of those disciples, Peter, wrote a letter, 1 Peter, and he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you, as though something strange were happening. The reason is this. A person who actually lives out imperfectly but increasingly the righteousness of the kingdom as pictured in the Sermon of the Mount becomes, as Jesus put it, a light in a dark place. And people in darkness will have one of two responses. They will either turn to this light and welcome it, or they will seek to blot it out as much as possible so it does not show what is in the darkness. Jesus said, John 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. I heard a story a hundred years ago or so. Electricity was just coming into some rural area, and the electric company went door to door, seeing who would buy the service. Most families weren't convinced. They hadn't seen this before. Uh, but a family called the Jordans agreed. And the date was set for the install, and the family purchased a large chandelier and got the light bulbs. And they gathered their family and, and all their neighbors that they could for a time when the switch would be thrown in the house. And they're all gathered there together, and finally the lights came on. And there were two reactions. One, how bright the light was. And second, how dirty the house was. See, the house had few windows. And the candlelight used previously had never really illuminated the stained and dirty ceilings and walls like the electric lights had. They hadn't known how bad it was. Well, the Jordans were a little embarrassed, but they soon set to work cleaning. Meanwhile, their neighbors, the Clarks next door, swore they would never install electric lights. For who wants to see all that dirt in their house? That is somewhat the reaction that people will have to the light of Christ. Some people will embrace it. Other people will seek to ignore it, marginalize it, or even blot it out. Christ was crucified. The best history that we have says that 11 of the 12 disciples died for their faith. Believers in the first 300 years of the church 
faced ongoing persecution, even death for their faith, as have other Christians at other times and places. For the last 100 years, this persecution in its most extreme form has primarily come in, from the atheistic governments of communism or from radical Islam. In fact, this is interesting, people who study these things tell us that more Christians have lost their lives in the last 100 years than the previous 19 centuries combined. Now, I want to emphasize this to put our own problems in perspective. We are not facing this kind of persecution, right? And no, nor do I think it's coming. I could be wrong, but it seems to me that that kind of persecution in Western countries emphasizing tolerance and pluralism would be counterproductive. So we got to keep this in perspective. In fact, I saw a cartoon. It had four panels. In the first, there was this first century or second century Christian, you know, praying, Lord, save me from, uh, from the, the torture and death that others have faced. The next is a picture of a Christian during the Reformation. Lord, help me to stand up for truth, even at the, even at the loss of property uh, or position. The third was a believer under uh, one of the Soviet regimes saying, Lord, give me strength to, to stand up against government oppression and, and arrest. And the fourth was a modern-day American Christian. says, Lord, the Volvo's been running a little rough lately. So we do have to keep it in perspective, right? We're not facing that kind of persecution. And I don't want to dishonor Christians who are or who have been by comparing that. But at the same time, I noticed Jesus, when he defined the persecution, said it could be persecutions or insults or slander. In other words, he's not just thinking of violent opposition. He's also thinking of slander and insults and denigration. It might be helpful to think of different levels or kinds of persecutions. And I put this in your notes. Uh, the first of these you might call kind of soft persecution, where you're marginalized or ignored or left out because of your faith, or, or you're misrepresented, maligned, or insulted, where you might have a loss of a little bit of cultural or political power. Sometimes you might have a loss of career choices, um, a loss of some rights, and you get more, more to the hard persecution here, sporadic violence by individuals or groups, a systemic violence tolerated by the government. Nine, violence or oppression from the government. Ten, imprisonment. Eleven, death. There, there is a spectrum here, right, of soft versus hard persecution. And while the hard persecution is obviously in one way more difficult to bear, it's also true that perhaps the soft persecution is a little bit more insidious, insidious because it's either unseen or, or excused, right? If a Christian is shot in New York or someplace for the simple fact of being a Christian, it's going to make the headlines. It's going to elicit sympathy. If a professor is denied tenure or a business person left unhired because, well, they won't be a good fit for the culture. Or if, uh, if Hulu or some other company makes a big budget movie or miniseries in which the worst people are all the religious people, well, hardly anyone would even notice, right? Peter says, don't be shocked, don't be surprised. Persecution of some sort Light or intense, sporadic or long-lasting, has been part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We've been living more of the exception than the rule. Second, expect persecution, avoid it when you can. We are never told to seek persecution. Our martyr complex is just as unattractive as any other complex, right? 
Jesus carefully defines what persecution he's talking about. Persecution because of righteousness or because of me. Not for political beliefs. Not because you have a combative personality. Not because we're being a self-righteous jerk. Uh, Peter puts it this way. If you suffer, it should be not as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. If you really are persecuted for, Christ, for being a Christian, seek to minimize or avoid it if you can. Jesus told his disciples to be like sheep in the midst of wolves. He said if they persecute you in one town, just go to the next. You don't need to fight them. Peter says to, be, to speak peaceably to outsiders. So, third thing, <clears throat> kind of leads to this. Don't attack your attackers. Do not attack your attackers if we are persecuted, slandered, or insulted. Now, let's clarify here. I'm not talking about self-defense. If someone is presently attacking you or someone else physically, you are right to physically oppose that. In the same way, if someone is lying about you, uh, smearing your reputation, you are within rights to clarify that by telling the truth. But what we are not to do is attack our attackers by resorting to the wrongful tactics that they use or to attack them simply for hurting us. They tell a lie about us, we tell a lie about them, or at least not the full truth. They insult us, we insult them. Not that this ever happens in the internet culture of our day, right? This never really occurs. But if it ever would occur, and you get that temptation to respond to snark with snark or insult with insult, we're told here in 1 Peter, don't repay evil with evil. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Who's going to harm you if you're eager, eager to, to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. Bend in your heart to reveal Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who may speak maliciously about your good, good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And that's the reminder. Christ suffered evil when he meant good to bring you to God, to bring me to God. And we imitate him when we do the same, when we show kindness and grace to those who insult us, persecute us, lie about us, harsh to us. And I believe that's also really at the core of what he means to, when that provokes that response of, you know, what does that make you different? If we reply with the same kind of snarky, insulting attitude that everyone else in the world seems to, to view as this, you know, standard operating procedure these days, we're not going to be any different. And the world will never look to us as different. But if we respond with love and grace and kindness, even when we are insulted and slandered even, that will get attention. Fourth, far from attacking our accusers, Jesus tells us this, to love them. This is later on in this same chapter of Matthew 5. You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 43, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then fifth, what do we do with persecution? Trust God. He is the one who allows it, and he does so for your good. Do you remember what Jesus said? You are actually blessed if you are persecuted because of him. You are actually better off if God allows it to be persecuted than not. What a strange saying. What a strange thought. How? Well, Jesus says, you will have reward in heaven. So the idea is that there is something that God notices and rewards. I I always fear there's a misconception here. When we hear that there's a reward in heaven or or something is kept in heaven for us, like 1 Peter says, we have something kept in heaven. We normally think of heaven as this uh, celestial place that we go to after we die. That is not primarily the way it's used in the Bible. Heaven, as I think Jesus means it here as most of the places elsewhere in the Gospels, doesn't mean the place we go when we die, but it means the, the realm of existence in which God and the spirit world dwells that intersects this one in every way. So heaven is not out there. It is all around us. It's a realm that we do not access with our physical senses at least, but it is here more stable than this one. So when Jesus says that you have reward in heaven, he's not simply talking about a future reward. That's probably in there a little bit as well. But he's saying that there is a a reward tied in to the spiritual realm of which you are a part that you're not going to be able to measure in your bank account or on the scales, but but it's more real because it's the internal, eternal part of you. Now, what does that look like exactly? Well, I think of at least two ways that we have treasure in heaven. First, because in suffering, you identify with Christ. Do you recall the last passage we looked at? We are to, to participate in, in the sufferings of Christ, being like him, the one who suffered evil for good to draw us to God. We're to do the same thing. When we do this, it sharpens us. It makes us, it makes us fully embrace what we say we believe. Related to this, First Peter again says that we become more like Christ when we suffer. We become more like Jesus Christ when we suffer. First Peter says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. That's a strong statement. What could he mean that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin? I kind of put it like this. Suffering for Christ in this world tests you. It tests you. And if you accept the suffering, if you pass the test, if you even rejoice and embrace it, it does something to you. You are forever changed like clay that has gone through the kiln. You, you are different now. You're no longer porous and soft and strong and useful. You have experienced firsthand and learned in a way that a book or a sermon never will that the ways of Jesus are different than this world, and you have taken your stand. You see, one of the great warnings Jesus gives again and again is that it's entirely possible for us to be deceived. 
whether we really are his disciples or not. Right here in the same Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, many will come to me on that final day and say, Lord, Lord, and he utters those incredibly sad words. Go away. I never knew you. And they even said, we, we, we did have these ministries. We had these spiritual gifts, but they weren't his. Suffering for Christ's sake and accepting that, being willing to embrace it when it's needed, that shows, that defines that we are not self-deceived. We are really his. And everything that flows out of that is for us. That is an incredible blessing. Now, I just want to ask one, add one thought as we conclude this here. As I said, we live in a culture where we are not going to face suffering of the kind that many people, many Christians, brothers and sisters, face in this world. I don't think that's coming. I don't think, you know, there's war on Christmas, you know, and, and, and all this means that our society is turning against us. All right, I, I think we need to tamp down the persecution complex sometimes. But I want to just address one final thought. You know, I put it like this. As a word of application, where do we go from here? I want to challenge us. I want to challenge me and you to, in our conversations with other people, especially in the areas of witnessing or standing up for Christ, to let ourselves be motivated by love and not fear. By love and not fear. I can't tell you as I look back at my life, I was doing that this week, and it was a sobering thought. How many people have come and gone into my life that I never shared the gospel with because I was afraid of their opinion if I did? I was afraid to be awkward. I was afraid to be messy. I was afraid to make the friendship awkward or even you know, distant. What a fool. I was guided by my fears and not by my love for them because I didn't want to miss out on what I thought was her good approval. So my challenge for us is this. Think about how God might want you to not be an obnoxious jerk, not be a culture warrior, but simply to be a Christian who shares the vibrancy and the joy and the message of the good news and be motivated by love and not fear in the way that we deal with other people. Will some of them reject us? Well, they won't be rejecting us, right? They'll be rejecting the gospel, at least if we approach it the right way with humility and grace. But even if they do, it's a suffering, it's, a, it's something that God can use to draw us closer. We're going to end with a song called Knowing You. I'm going to ask uh, Bonnie and Jeff to come lead us this song is actually based very closely on Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says some amazing things about knowing Christ. Now, he's writing as an apostle. He knows Christ, but he says, I want to know him more fully. There's a depth here that goes beyond what I have achieved, and I want that. And he says, this is an amazing part, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so in some way, if possible, to attain this beautiful resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's the beauty of who Jesus is, that Paul wanted even that much. Let's make this our prayer as well.